0: From Mark chapter 14. As you may know, um, this semester we have been talking about relationships here in Ruf. Everything from dating to marriage, singleness, sexuality. I try to think of a way to kind of tie everything up into one little package with a ribbon on it. And so I want to I, I want to cl- close out this semester, this series in a way that may feel a little counterintuitive, but you actually just heard talked about probably better than I could tonight from, from the seniors up here. And, and we're going to talk about confession. Now what I mean by confession, that word may sound bizarre to you and may bring weird images to your mind of like a confessional booth where you're telling somebody like <coughs> hidden secrets about your life. What I mean by confession really has more, it really has more to do with tattletaling, where, where you're, you're telling on somebody, but specifically yourself. In other words, what I mean by confession is living this life of vulnerability, of of, uh, transparency, of letting people see who you are and all of the beauty and all of the ugliness that is you. So with all that said, we're going to read this passage out of Mark Mark chapter 14, and I'm not really going to preach from this passage as much as I am just going to make a general point about it. And hopefully it'll make sense as we go. This is from um, Mark chapter 14, we'll look at verse 66 through 72. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them, and again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time, and then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, uh, pray with me, and we'll consider it together. Okay? So let's pray. Father, in your mercy, uh, would you teach us now? Would you be our, uh, our guide and our helper as we uh, look at this passage and, and discuss these things together? Um, we really do need you in these moments. And so would you come and would you open up our eyes and unclog our ears? And that would be our prayer. We'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen okay so here we have a famous passage where Peter who's one of Jesus's key disciples denies and disowns Jesus he publicly or at least in this particular situation because he's very cowardly and very kind of driven by fear he flat out denies even knowing who Jesus is okay here's what's really interesting about this story is because this is in the gospel of Mark and The book, the Gospel of Mark, was written by, you guessed it, Mark. But every biblical scholar and historian will tell you that the Gospel of Mark was written by Mark, overseen by Peter. Peter was basically, Peter was the source of all of the stories in the Gospel of Mark, and Mark was basically just ghostwriting for him. They're sitting there talking, and Peter's basically sharing all of the stories that are in this book that that Mark is, is writing down. And here's what's interesting about this, is that here we have an episode that makes Peter look terrible. He looks terrible. And there's no way that this story would be in the Bible unless Peter himself authorized it. No one else was around to sort of know about this story. And so he's the one, he's talking with Mark, he's the one that's telling him this story about himself, which is making him look terrible. He's flat out denying Jesus. He looks like a traitor. Uh, uh, Eugene Peterson writes this. He says, though St. Mark writes his story under the influence of the greatest of the apostles, Peter, he practically writes Peter out of the story by making clear that Peter is in actual fact the lead sinner. The glorification of Peter is blocked from the source. Peter is portrayed as a blasphemer and as a faithless human being. Here's what you have to see. Peter is brutally honest about his sin. Peter is brutally honest about his his sin. I mean, here it is. He's authorized Mark to preserve this forever in the Bible. He's quick to to acknowledge his sin because he is so confident in Jesus' love for him. He's just quick to acknowledge it. It's like he doesn't care. It's like the honey badger. He just doesn't care. (laughs) But here's the principle Here's the principle that's at work here. And and, and this is the one point that I want to make make tonight. I want to make one point tonight, just one. Here it is. If you don't hear anything else tonight, I want you to hear this. The more you understand and cherish the gospel of grace, the more honest you will be about your sin. That's it. The more you understand and the more you cherish the gospel of grace, the more honest you will be about your sin. That's the point. I want to break that sentence down, though. What do we mean by the gospel of grace? What do we mean by that? Well, the word gospel basically just means good news. That's all that word means. So the question is, okay, what is the, what do you, what is the good news about? Well, you could say, as some pastors have said, that the gospel is the good news that you are more sinful and wicked than you can ever dare dream. And yet, because of Jesus, you are more loved and accepted than you could ever imagine at the same time. I'll say it again. The gospel is the good news that you are more sinful and desperate and wicked than you could ever dare dream. And yet, because of Jesus, you're more loved and accepted than you could ever dare imagine at the same time. You notice there's kind of two halves to that. The first half of the gospel says this, that you're a a big sinner, and wicked, and desperate, and broken, and needy, and a failure. Now, uh, that's a bitter pill to swallow. Because if you're anything like me, I want to push back against that. Because that feels offensive. Because it feels like, okay, hey, I'm I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. I'm not more wicked than I could ever dare dream. I mean, I want to push back against that. I know you do too. Where it's easy to look at the fact of like, hey, I go to RUF every week. I read the Bible. I, I care about this stuff. I'm not that desperately wicked. And I want to say, I mean, I want to push back, and if I'm honest, I say, well, hey, I'm preaching the Bible every week. I'm surely not that bad. But here, the Bible's basic verdict over you is um, you can't save yourself. You aren't good. Your only chance, your only hope is, is is to rely on the mercy of someone else, to rely on the mercy of God. And we don't want that. We don't want mercy. We don't want charity. That's offensive to us, and and that's why that's our biggest problem. It is our pride in our goodness that keeps us from Jesus. That keeps us from God. There's a story uh, that my wife Catherine and I uh, heard very recently. Tragic, terrible story. But uh, one of our good friends, her father, um, for a long period of time was feeling sick. Just feeling. Um, uh, achy, something was wrong with him. And his, his family kept encouraging him to go see the doctor. He said, no, I'm okay, no, I'm fine, no, I'm fine. And this went on for about a year where he's just being encouraged, go to the doctor, no, I'm fine. It got so bad, he eventually went into the doctor. And the doctor said, uh, okay, you have cancer and you have three weeks to live. And, and he's, he has since passed away since we heard about this story. But here's what's so tragic about that story is that morally speaking, spiritually speaking, the Bible's diagnosis of us is that we are sick. And as long as we think that we are healthy, we're not going to go see a doctor. And, and people who are sick, who have convinced themselves that they are healthy and don't go see a doctor, they die. It's horrific. It's, it's, it's sad. But that's the first half of the gospel that we have to get. And you know, for some of you, you don't have any problem swallowing that pillow the first half of the gospel, you understand how desperate and how needy and how broken you are. It's the second half of the gospel that you have a problem with. It's, okay, I understand I'm needy and I'm broken, I'm a mess, but I don't understand how God could love me or how God could accept me, therefore. And this is really um, uh, where that word grace comes in, is that uh, grace means undeserved favor, unmerited favor. And the beauty of the gospel is that God gives you something you didn't deserve. Because what happens is he gives Jesus what you deserve, namely death on a cross, punishment, judgment, for our sin, for our wickedness, and we get what Jesus deserved, which is blessing and eternal life. The switch happens, which means that because of Jesus now, we are absolutely accepted and not rejected. This, this is what is the good news of the gospel. Basically, you put these two things together, and this is how you become a Christian, and this is how you continue to grow as a Christian is that you say and that you believe that the gospel is true for you. That the gospel is what defines you. The gospel, as Sammy said, is what shapes your identity. It says to you on the one hand, okay, I'm a mess and I'm needy and I'm broken. And on this, simultaneously, I'm loved and I'm accepted and God doesn't reject me. Martin Luther said uh, that Christians are simultaneously sinner and saint. And I think that that's the point. And, and, and uh, when you begin to understand that, the first half of the gospel is what confronts your pride. And the second half of the gospel is what confronts your fear. So the more that you understand and the more you cherish the gospel of grace, the more honest you will be about your sin. Okay, how does that work? Let's look at the second half of that sentence. How does understanding and cherishing the gospel of grace free you up and liberate you to be more honest about your sin? Well, if the gospel isn't the thing that is shaping your identity, that means that something else is. Namely, Your goodness, your morality, your righteousness, whatever you want to call it. Your goodness, basically. And as long as that is the thing that's shaping your identity, you will never be honest about your sin and about your failures because that's going to jeopardize your very identity. I mean, you see how this works? Here's how this works with religious people. People like you and me who come to things like this, RUF. Uh, What works with us, basically, if we're religious people and we don't understand and we don't cherish the gospel of grace, what we basically do then is that we put on a smile, and we get really enthusiastic about Jesus, or about missions, or about something else. Uh, We we make sure that we're seen at religious meetings, and uh, we try to kind of maintain this image that we're presenting to everybody, meanwhile, terrified of anybody actually finding out about what we really struggle with. We just live in sort of this dual world of here's my image, and here's me on the inside, terrified and lonely. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, uh, Life Together, uh, his, the, the, the last chapter of this really little book, which I would highly recommend to you, it's called Life Together. The last chapter of this book is all about confession. I want to read you a little excerpt from this. Here's what he says. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians uh, may still be left to their loneliness, The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. And so everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. Now, if you're someone here tonight who does not identify yourself as a Christian, this is really one of the reasons why you want nothing to do with Jesus and, and want nothing to do with the church. And to be honest, I don't blame you. Because you see Christians lying all the time. Lying in sort of this, this uh, hypocritical thing where, where, where we aren't, as Christians, and I myself am a Christian, I've been guilty of this, where we aren't honest about how needy and how broken and how desperate we are. Christians can actually stand to, to learn a lot from you of how honest and how in touch you are with your own neediness and your own brokenness in the world. We, we, we get out of touch with that as, as much as we should. But regardless of really where you are spiritually, don't you see that if the gospel begins to get deeper and deeper, it, it pushes out, it challenges your pride and your fear. Because, okay, it, it chips away at your old identity. If the gospel starts replacing your identity, it gives you a whole new self-image. If your self-image is based on the fact that you need Jesus, that confronts your pride, right? I mean, if your whole identity is based on need, then that that means you don't have any pride. You have no room to sort of boast anymore. And on the other hand, if your image, if your identity is based on the fact that you are loved and treasured and delighted in by God because of Jesus, not because of you, this is what confronts your fear. And now, now you have no reason To not confess. You have no fear to confess. There's nothing that you could say that would jeopardize your relationship with God that would threaten it. And if that is never jeopardized, then who cares what the rest of the world thinks, right? But let's go a step deeper. If the gospel of grace, if you're not understanding it, if you're not cherishing it, what will you do when you begin to see your sin exposed? When you're confronted with things that are really messed up about you, you, you'll do one of three things. One option that you will do if you're not understanding the gospel and you're beginning to see your sin is that you will lie about it. Just flat out lie about it. Be confessional here myself. Uh, When I was in college, I got together with uh, three or four of my close buddies. We'd get together once a week in... Uh, what some circles call an accountability group where we would um, ask each other questions about how we were doing with lust and with sexuality. We'd ask each other how we were doing with uh, our quiet times, which is just Christian lingo for reading the Bible. And uh, we, we wanted to push each other on spiritually and hold each other accountable. And so we'd come in there and at first, you know, very reluctantly and shamefully admit that you know, we screwed up this week, it's been a bad week, I, I'm, not, I'm just a failure, I feel like I'm disappointing people. And after a while of doing that every single week where you feel like I'm just a failure, I'm coming in, I'm just saying I'm not good at this, I'm not good at life, I suck at life. Eventually, I just started lying. I would go into this group because I, I, I got so allergic to having to talk about my weakness and my failure. I just I just started lying and said, yeah, I've I'm, I'm, I'm done great this week. Um, I had like four or five quiet times. Because I knew if I said seven out of seven, I knew that they would know I was lying. So I'd you know, cut it back some. Four or five is good. Or I'd meet with my campus minister and he'd probe around and ask me all kinds of questions. And I'd just lie my way through lunch. Just lie my way through it. Just like some of y'all do with me. Or some of y'all do with uh, Catherine or with the interns. I know you do it. Because I did it. So if we see our sin, one option is that we lie about it. Second option is that we deny it. We just flat out deny that it's even there. Most of my marital fights with Catherine look something like this. Uh, Catherine comes to me and says, uh, tells me that there's something I've done, or there's something that I've said that has hurt her, that's wounded her. Now, initially, what happens is that this feeling of anger begins to well up in me. And I get defensive. And I, I, I find a way to explain and to rationalize and to justify why I did what I did or why I said what I said. And then I turn the tables and blame her for being too sensitive. This is actually your fault, because no normal person would feel this, but you're hurt by this, this is your problem. Of course, the fight uh, escalates from that point. But if you notice, the whole thing goes back to my inability to receive criticism. My inability, my denial, my living in denial of the fact that that could actually be true of me that I'm capable of hurting another person, that I'm that reckless, that I'm that out of control. My defensiveness, your defensiveness, is coming out of this place of, I don't understand and believe the gospel. I'm not believing the gospel in that moment because if I really believed in that moment, I'm more sinful and wicked than I can ever dare imagine, but I'm more prized and loved by Jesus than I could ever dare dream at the same time, Then she would say, Matt, you did this. That was really hurtful. And I would say, oh, of course I did that. Of course I'm capable of that. And so much worse. I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? But that's not what I do. I do this and say, it's your fault. So we can lie about our sin. We can deny it. Or here's the the last thing we can do. Uh, We hide it. We can hide our sin. Now, this is really uh, the easiest option, because if we're honest, uh, there's a million ways that we can hide our sin from other people. Just think about it. This is a room of people. Y'all all look beautiful. Y'all all look great. And nobody knows anything about what you could have done or what you couldn't have done, right? I mean, you could have uh, hooked up with someone this weekend and no one would ever know. Uh, you could have looked at porn this afternoon and no one would know. You could have purged your dinner and no one would know. You could have gossiped your whole way to RUF tonight and no one would ever know. It's, it's just too easy to hide. But one of the things that we do, one of the ways, one of the strategies that we, that we use and employ to hide our sin is that we just, we just kind of tell half-truths, where someone's asking about our life, and we, and we kind of use the smoke screen to misdirect their attention over here by telling them something that's true, but withholding this larger fact that this ugly part of that truth, but as long as they just have this little bit, they'll be distracted and won't have to ask about the rest of this bit. We just tell half-truths. Or another way that we can hide our sin from each other is that we can uh, just talk about our struggles in the past tense. You ever noticed how we do this? Where it's just like we talk about, oh, you know, this is a struggle. I used to struggle with this. I used to deal with this. And that may be the case. But are we also talking about our present struggles, our present tense struggles? These are all ways that we can uh, hide it. And so step back and think about these three options. Why is it that when we see our sin, we either lie about it, we deny it, or we hide it? It's because we're not understanding the gospel. The gospel hasn't gone deep enough yet. Because if it has, then, then, then it would push out what, what is underneath all three of those strategies. And what's underneath those three strategies of lying, hiding, and denying? It is fear and it's pride. And as the gospel goes deeper, it confronts your fear and it pushes it out and it confronts your pride and it pushes it out. This is what we've been saying all night. The more you understand and the more you cherish the gospel of grace, the more you will be honest about your sin. The more you understand and cherish the gospel of grace, the more honest you will be about your sin. Here's what you're thinking. What in the world does this have to do with relationships? I'm glad you asked. Here's, here's why. Here's how this is relevant. Three ways it's relevant. <laughs> Couldn't get away from the three, but there's three. Um, it's relevant in three ways. The first is that confession is a necessity. Confession is a necessity. When, when you lie about your sin and, and, and you don't confess it, when you hold it in, it actually, it actually rots and ruins you from the inside out. I I want to read you uh, an excerpt from Psalm 32. Just listen to the language of this. You don't have to flip there if you have a Bible, but just listen. David, who's writing this, says this. When I kept silent, meaning kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I mean, you know that feeling, right, where, where you've got that secret, you've got that hidden thing about you, and, and you feel like it's just eating me up from the inside out. You, you feel like you can compartmentalize it and put it in a closet, and yet it's, it's reeking and rotting from, the, from your insides, and you don't want anybody to know about it, so you guard it and you protect it, and yet it is just eating you up from the inside out. Listen how, how this psalm continues. David then writes this. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And then the psalm ends with like rejoicing and singing. It's unbelievable. This reminds me of that Avid Brothers song, Weight of Lives. You know how it goes? Um, disappear from your hometown. Go and find the people that you know. Show them all the good parts leave town when the bad ones start to show, right? And then the chorus, the weight of lies will bring you down, we'll follow you to every town. Because <laughs> nothing happens here that doesn't happen there. That's, this is the point. So think about it. When, the way that this ruins relationships, the reason why this is necessary for relationships is that you so desperately want to be accepted and you want to be loved and you want to be known, but you're so afraid that if someone finds out this shameful thing about me, they're not going to do that. They're not going to love me. And so the strategy that we use is we show them all the good parts and we hide all the bad parts. And as soon as the bad parts start to show, we want to retreat from the relationship, we want to end the relationship, we want to move on to something else. But here's what you have to see. If you stop and think about that, what we're doing is we're we're presenting this one side of ourselves to people and say, love and accept me, love and accept me, and I'm going to hide all this other stuff about me. You're you're presenting a sham to people. You're only presenting this plastic version of yourself and say, love half of me. Rather, and let's say somebody does respond and they respect you and they love you and accept you, but they only know half of you. Is that real? Is that real acceptance? Is that real love then? It doesn't make sense. Confession is a necessity. It is necessary for real and authentic relationships. If you want to have real and authentic relationships, ones that are beyond the surface, when they go deep, then confession is necessary, letting that stuff out and letting people know about it. Here's the second thing. Confession is a priority. Confession is a necessity and confession is a priority. And here's what I mean by that. When you look for potential mates, when you look for people that you want to marry in the future, is this trait of confession a trait that you prioritize and a trait that you value? You should. You really should. Because this really is in some ways a... a, a barometer to determine whether or not somebody is actually understanding and cherishing the gospel. Uh, if, if if they are defensive and they're quick to make excuses and they're quick to blame other people and they can't take criticism, that means that they aren't really understanding and cherishing the gospel. You know, what's so interesting is as, as I've talked to so many couples uh, one of the things that I have discovered is that so many couples put such a huge emphasis on each other's uh, sexual past. And so what happens is that, you know, you, you're having this dating relationship and you go for, farther enough along where you eventually get to, like, this epic, famous talk where you disclose with one another all of uh, what happened in your sexual history. And for some couples... Whatever has happened in that past, if, 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 if the past is too checkered, it, it is a, uh, it's a deal breaker for the future of the relationship. And the question that I want to ask is, why is it that we elevate sexual sin as the deal breaker? Why not lack of confession? Why not lack of humility, lack of repentance? Because, not to, not to minimize the weight of sexual sin in any way, not to minimize it, but... The Bible actually puts more emphasis on the lack of confession than it does the la- than it does our sexual sin our sexual histories. Confession is a bigger deal in the Bible than our sexual sin. C.S. Lewis describes this perfectly in his book, uh, Mere Christianity. I'm just going to quote it to you. He says this Finally, though, I have had to speak at some length about sex. This is a chapter on sex. I've had to speak at some length about sex. I want to make it as clear as I possibly can that the center of Christian morality is not here. He's saying, look, the center of our ethical system does not live and die on sex. He goes on, if anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport. Don't know what that means. uh, Of backbiting, the pleasures of power, the pleasures of hatred. And then here's the sentence I want to highlight. He says this, that is why a cold, self-righteous prig who regularly goes to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it's better to be neither. I think he's right. Confession is a priority. Is that a priority for you? As you think about who you are and what you are becoming and who you want to marry down the road, is confession, someone who is honest and vulnerable, vulnerable about their sin, is that a, tra- a trait that you prioritize? It should be. Confession is a necessity. Confession is a priority. And last, confession has a responsibility. And here's what I mean by that. I, I want to talk the- to, the- to the people that are going to be on the receiving end of somebody else's confession. Because let's say you go out and do this. You-, you find someone that you trust, find someone who's very close to you, and you share with them, you disclose to them who you really are. That person... Has a responsibility, in my opinion. One, they have a responsibility not to be shocked. Not to be shocked. If they are really understanding the gospel, if you trust them enough to think that they really understand the gospel, there should be nothing that you tell them that surprises them, that shocks them. They should say, oh yeah, I've, I've either struggled with that myself, or I'm in the middle of struggling with that myself, or I'm totally capable of that. They should not be shocked. But secondly, they have a, an opportunity and a responsibility to speak words of grace, especially, and, and particularly if this is someone who's confessing their sin, who, who has a relationship with Jesus. There is nothing more beautiful and no more privilege than I have as a campus minister when students come to me broken over their sin, torn up because of this thing that they've done in their past or the thing that they have in the middle of doing, and they're broken over it, and they come before me, and it gives me the opportunity to look at them and say, you know, I really hate that that is what you're struggling with. But let me assure you, this does not jeopardize God's love for you. This does not threaten his commitment to you. He forgives you and he loves you. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. And when someone confesses something to you, you have that same opportunity and that same responsibility. That if they are a Christian, if they trust Jesus, then that is the response that they need to hear. If they are repentant and broken over their sin, they don't, they don't need to hear shock. They don't need to hear shame. They don't need to hear strategies on how they can change. They need to hear God loves you and forgives you because that is the gospel of grace. The more that you understand and cherish the gospel of grace, the more honest you're going to be about your sin. And I'll just wrap up with this. Uh, Mark Driscoll is a somewhat famous pastor now in in Seattle. And he tells the story of this uh, woman who came into his office one day. And she... um, uh, was confessing to him that when she was engaged to her now husband, she had had sex with another man, and he looks at her and says, Well you need to tell your husband she 's you know of course terrified doesn 't want to do it he 's never you know he doesn 't know he 's like what well, you need you, you have to tell your husband this and so she finally decides, okay in two days i 'll do it i 'll work up the nerve i 'll work up the courage, and in two days i 'll do it i 'll have this candlelight dinner, kind of ease the blow and and uh, and maybe that'll be a sufficient way to tell him so she works up the nerve and two days later they're in the middle of dinner and she tells him when we were engaged uh, i had sex with another man and he gets up from the table and leaves the house she starts bawling just a puddle just a mess on the floor because she finally told him who she really was and he left well he comes back an hour later And he's holding this box. And she's, of course, like still on the ground, crying hysterically uncontrollable. And he picks her up and he takes her into their bedroom. And he opens up this box and it is a white robe. And he says, look, every time you are in this bedroom, I want you to wear this as a reminder that you are clothed in Jesus's righteousness. That you are are clean, that you are forgiven, and that you are washed in his blood. Now let me ask you this. Do you think after her telling her husband that, and, and for him to not leave, but to actually draw closer, do you think that that made her love her husband more or less? Here's the point. When you finally own up to who you are, and you confess that to God and to other people, you will find that God does not run God does not reject, God does not shame you, but He actually draws closer. And that is what makes you want to love Him more. And that is what liberates you to want to share your sin and your struggles and the ugliness stuff that you've hide and buried away. That's what gives you the freedom and the confidence to want to pull it out. Because you know that there is nothing that you can do that will, that, that will jeopardize or threaten His love and His commitment to you. It's too strong, it's too, it's too impossible. You are too secure. And that is the point the more that you understand and the more you cherish the gospel of grace, the more honest you will be about your sin. And that's the invitation for tonight and for the end of the semester. Let's pray with me. Father, we would ask that you would give us the faith to understand and to cherish the gospel of grace, that your grace in Jesus would be so beautiful, so compelling, so attractive to us that we would know that, that it, is, it is so stable, it's so secure, specifically because it's, it's what you've done, it's nothing that we've done, that that would give us the freedom and the confidence to be honest, to, to live broken and vulnerable and uh, transparent lives, knowing that we have nothing to lose. We have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Would you give us that grace? Would you give us faith? And we would ask in Jesus' name, amen.